If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. And without further ado, on with the show. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I have a great guest today. I'm talking to Chris Daly. Chris Daly is considered to be a highly talented internet marketing expert. He started from humble beginnings and acquired marketing knowledge and work experience that made him stand out from his peers in a relatively short period of time. In 2014, he founded his company, Daily Conversion, and he grew to become a fast-rising, award-winning testing and optimization service provider. He eventually merged the company with the company with Disruptive Advertising, a hotshot digital marketing company in Utah, and he now leads the company's practice in testing and optimization. I'm pleased to have Chris on the show to tell us a little bit about himself, his background, and his work experience. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Chi. My pleasure. Great. So, Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, so I... um. I actually had no idea that I would end up where I am today, you know, probably 10 years ago. In fact, I didn't even know that the industry I'm in right now existed 10 years ago. <laughs> um, I, I started my career in, in a sales capacity. So I was doing sales for an agency that sold digital marketing. Mm. Um, and so I, I started out selling search engine optimization, which is, you know, all about helping companies get their websites ranked on the Google search results. Mm -hmm. And while I was selling it, I was just fascinated by the whole concept because, you know, uh, you know, Google something that everyone uses every single day. And I, I was just uh, blown away that you could influence where your website ranked. So I ended up applying for a job internally and, um, and got it. And so I, I spent probably three years doing search engine optimization in a variety of different um, venues. You know, I, I worked for agencies, I worked in-house for companies, and I loved it. Um, and after about three years in the space, I was, I was in-house at a company, and we were crushing it on the SEO front. We were getting lots and lots of traffic to the website. Um, I think we had like a 300% uh, increase in traffic from Google in nine months. So wow. really, really awesome results. Um, and I remember one meeting that I had with my, I think it was like my boss and the CEO, you know, one of those meetings where it's like, show us why we should give you a raise kind of a thing. Yeah. And um, I showed all of these, all of these great, uh, you know, increases that we had had in traffic. And at the end of the meeting, they said, okay, well, all this is cool. You know, it's great to get traffic. So what, <laughs> you know, what does that, what does that mean for our business? And I couldn't answer their question. I didn't know. You know, I was just so focused on getting traffic. Mm -hmm. And so when we started to dig into what was happening with that traffic, turns out that a lot of that traffic wasn't converting. Wow. You know, we weren't making additional sales off it. It was just a bunch of people coming to the site and leaving, uh, which is obviously not what we wanted. I discovered the field that I'm in right now, website testing and optimization, kind of by accident um, and, and kind of by necessity. Um, so, you know, I was just kind of looking for a way to get our traffic to convert. I stumbled upon this, this idea called AB testing, where you could create a copy of one of the pages on your site, change something and see how it impacted the users. So I thought, what the heck, might as well try it out. And, uh, so we, I, you know, I ran my first test on a website. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, it was an awful, awful test, and the page looked terrible, but it ended up increasing conversion rates. Mm. And that's when I kind of found my passion and my love, which was, you know, and it's it's really kind of the, the seed was planted when I, when I started to learn about search engine optimization. Oh, yeah. and, and the thing that I really love about website testing is figuring out what makes people make decisions. Mm. Like, you know, figuring out 
why people do the things they do online, figuring out, um, you know, what, what colors people respond best to and what images people respond best to, what kind of, uh, how much content people read online. Um, and so I spent, um, I spent, you know, I, I pivoted in my career. I moved over to this, you know, website testing industry and spent a couple of years doing website testing. Um, and I, I ended up again in house for, uh, for a company. Um, we were having tremendous success with website testing. We were increasing conversion rates, seeing lots of success. And I, I just had people coming to me all the time asking me for help on their website. You know, business owners, uh, marketers, people were coming to me all the time just saying, hey, what do you think I should do here? Hey, can you help me set up this test? Uh, and, and just a lot of interest from people. And I thought, you know what? Like, there's a lot of opportunity here. A lot of companies need this. Mm-hmm. Um, I recognized that a lot of other agencies out there that did website testing were ridiculously overpriced. Wow. And, you know, so I thought, what the heck? I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to go in. I'm going to I'm going to start a business. And, uh, you know, I created a, a big list of criteria that we can talk about later, but a big list of criteria under which I would continue to run my own business. You know, I set some goals for myself and I quit my job, started my agency and uh, and it's all kind of been a huge whirlwind since then. But that's kind of uh, I guess that's that's how I how I ended up where I'm at today. <laughs> that's great. And you mentioned a lot of things in that brief intro. So you didn't even know about SEO when you got into SEO. And then from SEO, you kind of stumbled into conversion and site testing. And that's when you found your passion. And I think the main thing I want to focus on here was that you said something about, you know, figuring out how people make decisions. Now, I know you call yourself a neuromarketer, but when people make decisions, people think of psychology and they think of copy and all that. Nobody, first of all, thinks of, you know, movement and placement of things on the website to see what will make people make decisions. So how did you narrow into the psychological aspect of getting people to make um, positive decisions like conversions and buying or taking action by putting their name, email, and phone number in the website? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, and the the interesting thing is, it makes a lot of sense. You know, when you're when you're trying to influence how people behave on your site, it makes a lot of sense to dive into the psychology, to dive into why they make decisions. And the sad thing and the funny thing is that most companies don't focus on any of that stuff. Yeah. Most companies are so focused on a thousand other things mm-hmm. that that they'll say. Oh well, let's just let's just put something up. Let's copy one of our competitors, and if it works, awesome. If it doesn't work, we'll try something totally different. Um, and so most businesses aren't taking the time to really dive in and say, "Well, hold on here. Let's think about let's think about um, you know why people might be behaving the way that they are. Let's think about what people might want to see on this website, and then let's try a couple of different approaches. Let's see how people respond." Um, you know, even even companies that do testing on their website, <laughs> I see this all the time um, with new clients we'll start to work with and they'll say, oh, yeah, well, we've we've tested some things on our site before and we start to look at some of the tests that they've run and they'll they'll run a test and it won't succeed. And they'll say, well, that didn't work. Let's let's do something else. Mm. They and they don't stop to ask themselves, why didn't it work? Mm. What was it about this about this test that? Yeah. That you feels. just didn't respond well to, yeah. right? Or, or the, even the the you know the inverse is even more of a more of a trap for businesses to fall into. When you have a test that succeeds, it's very easy to go, awesome, we found something that works. Let's have a little party. Let's put it on our site and then let's move on to something else. Instead of really diving in and going, okay, we found something that works. Why? What did we learn about our people? Yeah, why did this work? Yeah. Um, so I think that that is really what frankly, what has um, led to a lot of the success that I've had is just looking beyond the win and asking, what did we learn here? Why did this work? And where can we go from here based on what we know about our audience? Hmm. So what were some of the skills you learned in SEO that made it um, handy when you came into 
conversion and testing field that helped you start seeing early success with some of your clients? Yeah, well, and that's, you know, search engine optimization is, um, it's an interesting field. It's changed a lot since <laughs> since the days when I did it. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a lot easier back when I did it. But, um, you know, search engine optimization in its purest form is about creating um, a website that has value, mm-hmm. right? So that when someone comes to your site, they find what they're looking for. Ultimately, that's what Google cares about. Google wants to show search results to people that are going to give them the information they want, right? And so, yeah. um, and so, you know, I had a lot of experience with testing copy headlines, um, you know, and just really figuring out how to answer people's questions when they're coming to your site. They're coming with some kind of a need, whether it's they want information, they want a product, they want um, they they want help with something. Um, you know, people are, are coming to your website with a need, and the purpose of your website is to fulfill that need, to deliver whatever it is that they want, and 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 hopefully make some money in the process. Yeah. You know, and so um, and so I think that I think that doing SEO kind of set me up for success because I went in asking some of those fundamental questions. What are people looking for when they come to my site? What is it that I have that fulfills their need? Um, And again, I wasn't equipped to answer a lot of those questions when I was doing SEO because, you know, SEO, it's all about how can I give Google information so that they think that I have what people are looking for. And yeah, and website website testing cuts out the the Google out of the equation, and mm-hmm. and you can just get right down to the meat of the problem, which is what are people what what are the people looking for? One of the things you said earlier was that companies, you know, even Fortune 500 companies, whenever they have their websites up and running, they don't think about testing in depth. You know, the most they would probably do is either invest in design or invest in PPC, getting more traffic to their website, and they wouldn't invest in testing to see what works. So why do you think they don't spend the same amount of time or money investment in working on conversions and testing? Because it's not easy. (laughs) I mean, mean, and I get this. As someone who started a business, um, I totally get that you want to be able to make quick agile decisions mm-hmm. um you know that is cru- it's crucial when you're starting a company to be able to pivot to change direction to you know figure out what makes the most sense for your business um and a lot of companies and and most people in the business world have a hard time taking a step back and looking at things from a more strategic standpoint. Yeah. And it's it's absolutely necessary when you get your business to a certain point. In fact, we just went through this at Disruptive uh, just a little while ago, you know, so we have grown pretty quickly. Um, you know, I merged my company with Disruptive uh, a little over a year ago. And when I got here, we were at, um, you know, I don't know, something like 40 employees. And I think this month we are now over 70 employees. So in the last oh, year, we've wow. almost we've almost doubled in size employee-wise. And um, you know, and with that kind of growth, there's a lot of changes that need to happen inside mm-hmm. the organization, yeah. right? I mean, when you when you start out and it's just you and a couple of employees, I mean, all of you guys can can you know kind of do your own thing, make decisions. Um, you know, again, pivot, change direction if you need to. And it's not that hard to, to steer a ship when you've only got two people in it. But when you've got 80 people, you know, 70, 80 people that are mm-hmm. that are in a ship, it takes a lot longer to change direction. And so, you know, we've had to make a lot of organizational changes and bring on some more seasoned roles to help us make sure that we're being strategic and not just, um, you know, bouncing around on a day-to-day basis. And, and so, you know, same thing with the website. It's it's fine when you first get your website going. Just get something up, right? Mm-hmm. Get something up and launch it. Um, but once you kind of get to the point where, okay, you're starting to get people to the website. We need to, we need to be strategic here. 
it's important to start to take a step back and go, all right, now let's, instead of just putting up a new website and redesigning it every year, let's start to ask some of these questions. Let's start to dive in and, and learn. And so that's the step that businesses need to take. And it's the step that most businesses haven't taken yet. Yeah. And I can only imagine that's probably because there's so many variables you have to test. You know, you have to test placement. You have to test the content, length of the content, colors, like you said, um, length of the write-up, the copy itself, positioning of the words. There's so There are thousand and one variables that could go into testing to make sure that whatever you have on your website is the best and most perfect version of itself that will help you convert faster and convert quicker compared to other versions that were previously up. So in your experience, how can, if a company is now starting to think strategically about conversion rate optimization and testing, what are some of the key variables they should start looking at and start testing right away? before getting into the weeds of all the other things that they could do. Oh yeah. And I'll tell you, I mean, just on that note, I think the number one thing that prevents businesses from testing is what you just mentioned. Fear of not knowing what is going to be the most important thing, right? Mm. They're, they're afraid that they're going to waste their time on something that's not going to have an impact. Or a lot of times businesses are afraid they're going to screw up whatever is already working on their yeah. site. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so a couple of the things I've, I've actually boiled it down um, to about to six things that I've found are the are the, the six most impactful um, elements on any site when you're talking about conversion rate. And um, what, what I'll do is I'll just I'll give you a couple of the most important on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I can give you guys a, a link to to the full list and, and to some other things that, 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 you know, you and your audience can dive into. But, um, I, what, what I would say are probably the three most important things to look at when you start testing. Number one is, um, is your call to action. Okay. So a call to action on a page, um, it, it, there's, there's a lot of common mistakes people make with call to action. Number one, uh, number one mistake I would say is not having your call to action noticeable and clear. Hmm. So um, one of the common things I see on almost every website out there is designers love to use uh, color palettes that match. So, you know, you'll have a blue menu and you'll have blue buttons on your site and you'll have blue headlines and you know everything's blue, 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 blue. And then you'll have a white background, you know, and, and just everything matches and everything yeah. flows. Um, and it looks really nice. Yeah. But what happens to the user going into the psychology here, when you, when, when you can't immediately tell what you're supposed to click on, mm-hmm. people feel stupid yeah. <laughs> and people do not like to feel stupid. And so, um, it's important that the call to action, the thing you want them to do on every page of your site is super obvious, like yeah. almost, almost embarrassingly, like in your face, obvious. And like, so like click here, man. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and like, yeah, I mean, you've seen, you've seen landing pages you go to before where there's like arrows pointing to the button and yeah. you've got a flashing button, you mm-hmm. know, that's, that's changing colors. I mean, you don't have to be outrageous like that. And it is super important that within two seconds, your user can figure out what they're supposed to do. So use color contrast to your advantage. Make sure that that call to action button is a, is the only thing on the page that is a contrasting color, you know, something that's like red or orange or green, you know, really stands out against everything else. So that's one thing that I would absolutely recommend testing is figure out what your call to action needs to look like Mm -hmm. and what it needs to say. Um, that's one of the first tests that I will usually run. The second thing is distractions. So again, one one of the things that I always will counsel my clients and my employees to do is approach every test with a question. You don't want to go in assuming that you know what is going to affect conversion rates. And so you want to ask yourself questions and then use testing to find the answers. So one question that I will always ask on every client site that we work with is what could potentially be distracting our users? Yeah. 
what could potentially be distracting them from the call to action. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of the most common distractions is too much stuff. <laughs> so we, we ran a test on one of our client sites um, that sells all kinds of products. So they sell t-shirts and hats and lighters and uh, switch blades and mm. you know just any anything you can imagine for under a hundred dollars. So on their home page you go to their home page and they had I don't know, probably 75 products on their homepage. Wow. You know, and they had them all grouped together in categories. You know, they have like new arrivals, most popular products, um, highest reviewed products, uh, and then they had like a shirt category and a you know, men's shirts, women's shirts, uh, you know, accessories. I mean, they had all these different categories and they'd have all these products listed on their homepage. And they thought they were being really strategic with this. They say, Oh, well, you know, we don't know what people are looking for when they come to our site. So we want to make sure that we don't alienate people. Like, mm. you know, if they don't want T-shirts, we want to make sure that we've got accessories on there. We want to make sure that if they're a male, you know, we have products for them. We want to make sure they have female products, right? They're trying to, they're trying to make sure that there is something on the homepage for, for everyone. Everybody. But when you right? try to please everybody, you please no one. Please nobody, right? Yeah. And you give... When you give too many options, it confuses people. Yeah. It overwhelms people, and people have a hard time making a decision. Yeah. And so one of the first tests that we ran on their site is I call it an existence test. We just tested removing things from the page. So you know, we had one version where we removed T-shirts from the page. We had another version where we removed uh, you know, accessories from the page. We ended up with eight different versions of their home page. And all we had done is remove stuff. Mm -hmm. These are very, very easy tests to build. Um, we launched the test, and within a week, seven of the eight variations had generated an increase in revenue to the tune of about $40,000 in increased revenue. Oh, wow. Just from, just from removing stuff from yeah. the site. All right? And so then, of course, the, the question that, that I have to ask is why? Why did all of those variations increase revenue? And of course the answer is there were too many things. Mm -hmm. There were distractions and the distractions happened to be their products. <laughs> and so that test right there in one week, we identified seven distractions on the homepage mm -hmm. that by removing, we were able to increase revenue. So number two, figure out and ask yourself what could be distracting our users and try removing those things. Mm -hmm. It's a very easy way to identify distractions, right? Yeah. Um, and then the third, the third thing that I will always ask is um, how customized is our mobile experience? <laughs> so a big uh, common misconception people have about mobile is uh, businesses will just say, do we have a mobile website? If they have a mobile website, they just kind of check that item off their list and then move on to other things, right? Yep. But the fact of the matter is people on a mobile device behave totally different yeah. than people on a desktop device. Yeah. And so one of the first, another first thing that we test with a lot of our clients is what should we have on our mobile site? Is there something that we have on our desktop site that we shouldn't have on our mobile site, right? So again, we're talking about potentially removing things on mobile that we have on desktop. So mm -hmm. typically mobile users want to read a lot less content. So you might want to test removing some content that you have on your, on your desktop site. Typically, um, if at all possible, mobile users are a lot more likely to call you than they are to fill out a form. Mm. And so can you implement click to call buttons mm -hmm. instead of a form, right? Mm, yeah. uh, in fact, I just ran a test for a client um, a week or two ago where we, we literally removed the form from the mobile site and we put a click to call button on, call volume went up by like 300%. And, and calls are much more valuable to that client than a form. Mm -hmm. So customizing that mobile site is a very, very big deal. And typically they're not super hard tests to build. It just requires you to think a little bit about what your mobile users might want. So, you know, 
I could probably go on all day about this stuff, but those are probably the three most impactful tests you could run. Now, um, staying on mobile for a little bit, I know a lot of companies actually use responsive websites as opposed to building a mobile website itself or mobile. So do you think um, that's laziness on their part or they should start splitting them out because sometimes people just don't want to deal with a mobile website and then a desktop website and they just feel well if it's responsive it's going to work on both anyway and it will look fairly decent on both platforms so why not just leave it as a responsive oh yeah and i i I actually completely agree with that mentality you don't want to have to deal with two completely separate sites and even with a responsive design it's very very easy to to have a different experience. Like it's, it's very simple when, you know, once you get down below a certain screen size, when you get down to a mobile screen size, Mm -hmm. it's very easy to go in and code your site so that certain things get removed at that screen size or so that things change. So you can keep them, you can keep a responsive site and have it be customized for mobile just by, just by tweaking some things, having, you know, your form disappear once you get down to a mobile screen size and replace it with a button. Or once you get down to a certain screen size, remove half of your content and all of your images <laughs> so that the site loads faster, so that, um, you know, again, you're, you're customizing for that mobile user. Okay, because I know that's one of the biggest things, especially for the audience that are starting their own businesses themselves. And when you're starting out, you actually pretty much are the web designer and the and the marketer, content creator, the producer, yep. everything. So yep. you, you might not want to think of that extra step of, man, I need to go create another mobile website and I have barely figured out uh, WordPress. So that's good to know that it's just a easy twick of a button and then it'll be done. So when you started your consulting firm and your agency, how did you land your first client? Yeah, that's a good question. And and I will I'm going to add on to that question. How do I get my first client and second client? Because sometimes the second client in in my case, my second client was harder than the first. Okay. So um, so, so we'll I talk about, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about why it was harder. Also. Yeah. So my first client um, I got. So when I was uh, I mentioned I was working in house for a company and I had a bunch of people that kept coming to me asking me for for help with their websites. Um, so, you know, I actually kind of engaged with my very first client before I even started my business. Um, I mentioned to them, Hey, if, if I was to start a business, would you guys, uh, you know, would you guys be interested in working with me? And they said, absolutely. So, (laughs) so the first client actually didn't require a ton of risk for me. Um, but when I decided to take on that client, I said, you know, I met with a lot of entrepreneurs. I had a lot of mentors at the time and, um, you know, and I, and some of the advice that I got was if you're going to start a business, start a business, <laughs> don't try to start it on the side. Cause what a lot of, uh, what a lot of budding entrepreneurs will do is they will say something like, well, I'll start my business on the side, mm-hmm. and then once I'm making as much on the side as I am in my current job, then I'll then I'll quit my job. Yeah. All right. But the problem with that, and I mean, this isn't new advice. I'm sure people on your show have talked about this many, many times. The problem with that is, you are not very motivated at all to make crap happen when you're just when you've got a full time gig and you're just kind of tinkering around on the side Mm -hmm. like it is very 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 unlikely that you will start a successful business part-time while you've got a full-time job and so I decided okay if I'm gonna take on this client I'm gonna quit my job and I'm gonna start a company (laughs) and so that's what I did so this client said yes we'll work with you I decided to start my company and I had I had a client in the bag and so um, you know that that process was a lot easier than than getting my second client. So how did you land the second client, and why was that a big challenge for you? Yeah, well, what so again, you know, my first client was kind of spoon-fed to me, mm-hmm. right? I had them in the bag. It didn't. I didn't really have to go out and find them. I already had, you know, I already had that client basically when I started my business, and so 
the second, the third, fourth, those clients were much, much harder for me to find because, you know, again, I hadn't had a business before, mm-hmm. hadn't really been actively looking for clients. Um, my first one just kind of fell into my lap. And so with the second client, I had to really figure out, I, I had to ask myself, okay, well, now that I no longer have a job, how am I going to keep growing this thing? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we went out and I mean, and really I, I just had to figure out how, how am I going to find these people? <laughs> You know, I hadn't been doing networking events. I hadn't been, um, you know, I, I hadn't spent a lot of time doing sales in the last 10 years. And so I was pretty rusty. And so I just decided I'm going to get in front of as many people as I can. You know, I at first I tried just like reaching out to people cold on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. you know, like people that people that I was connected with on LinkedIn. And uh, I asked some of my friends if they could connect me with people in roles at the company that they were at. Um, that did end up generating a few clients for me, um, but my second client didn't come from that. <laughs> my second client actually came from a networking event. So I went to a networking event, and um, and this was transformative for me as a new entrepreneur. Going to a networking event and being required to put myself out there to be vulnerable and to just practice my pitch over and over and over and over again, you know, dozens of times, hundreds of times in a single day mm-hmm. going through that, that elevator pitch. And, um, what, what that did for me is number one, I became really good at telling my story quickly. And number two, I started to learn the kinds of businesses that might be good clients for me, right? Okay, so up um, until that point, you didn't know what type of client you were actually targeting. You hadn't segmented your potential clients. No, because of course, I had no idea, right? I had never <laughs> yeah. started a business before. Yeah. I was just, you know, I went from being an in-house marketer, a geek that just sits at a desk all day to like, crap, I have a business now. <laughs> like, yeah. How am I going <laughs> to find people? And so, yeah, I hadn't, I had not thought any of this through. I mean, I had thought some of it through, obviously. But, yeah, but even um, starting a business, you cannot think of hundred uh, percent of everything that will come up, you know. No, and I hadn't put it into practice either. I mean, you can have your ideas down on paper, mm-hmm. but getting that plan into action is a totally different thing. Yeah. And going from having your ideas on paper to having it in your head, so that when you're talking to people, you know what kinds of things to talk to people about. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it just takes practice, right? Yeah. And so. Um, so that networking event was a fantastic way for me to uh, learn the skill set that I would need to be successful as an entrepreneur. And that actually springboarded me into what now has become the most success- successful, well, the second most successful way of getting clients for me, which is speaking at conferences. Okay. Um, you know, as, as someone who relies on expertise, uh, you know, people um, seeing that I have expertise in a certain industry. Um, speaking at conferences became a fantastic way for me to get clients and, um, and those networking events really prepared me number one, to have the confidence to speak in front of people that were intimidating. Cause when, I mean, when you go to networking events, especially if you're going to quality networking events that are with other business owners, it's super intimidating when you've come from, you know, lowly beginnings as, yeah. you know, just an employee and you go, holy shit, all of these people are business owners. Like these are all successful people. They're all, in fact, they're all way more successful than I am at this point. Yeah. It's, it can be really intimidating to, to talk to them like, like you are their peer. Yeah. Um, and what you learn pretty quickly is that you are their peer. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these business owners are just normal people. When you go speak at a conference and you've got a bunch of people staring down there, you know, staring you down, waiting for you to say something profound, it's really intimidating and you go, wow, these people, like, if I don't say something great, they're not going to like me. They're just normal people too. (laughs) And so it's really helpful to get past that mindset of being intimidated by people Mm -hmm. and be able to go and feel comfortable with who you are, feel comfortable with what you bring to the table and go, not everyone's going to be interested in this. And that doesn't mean that I suck. That doesn't mean that I have nothing to offer. It just means these are all normal people and not everybody's looking for what I have to offer. Yeah. But the few that are, 
we'll, we'll definitely come up and reach out to you and say, hey, I liked what you said. Um, can we talk further and can we, you know, see if we can get some business going together? Exactly. Yep. Oh, that's great. And one thing you were, you were talking about, especially this expert positioning thing, because I know you came, um, you're pretty young. I don't know how old you are, but you're pretty young. And then you have your own business. Now you find yourself networking with people that are probably middle age or much older than you are. Much and, older than me. Yep. <laughs> exactly. And then you start speaking in conferences as a keynote speaker, as a guest speaker and all that and you know this expert positioning that you had to adopt the expert mentality and the expert persona that you had to adopt in order for you to sell your business do you think that adopting that even from the very beginning let's take for example even though you're an employee in a company or you're a student looking to get into a company to get your first or second job do you think that starting with that expert positioning right away could help someone like that in their in their early early stage even if they feel they don't know anything do you think it would help boost their visibility and their their what's the word i'm looking for now their attractiveness yeah their yeah. opportunities and their attractiveness to people that are looking to hire them Oh, you bet. You you bet. Because, I mean, <laughs> we have a saying over here at Disruptive that whatever is in your heart oozes out of you. <laughs> and so whatever you believe you are inside and what, however you view other people, however you view yourself, it, it's, it is going to bleed into every conversation you have. Mm. And so, I mean, I will tell you this, when I first started my business, again, I started an agency. And so this is like a monthly service mm -hmm. that I'm offering. I did not believe that I could sell someone on like a recurring uh, contract. Because I was just like, why would anyone want to sign a contract with me? Like, I'm just going to try to sell them the easiest thing I can possibly sell them with, which is like one test. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I went in with that mentality, which was so, so stupid. Um, but that's all I thought that I could sell. And because that's all I thought I could sell, that's all I sold. Wow. <laughs> and as I started to as I started to gain confidence in myself as an entrepreneur, I started to sell contracts that I never would have imagined in my life I would sell you know contracts that generate hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue every year from a single client mm -hmm. um, you know I would I never would have imagined that a client would sign that with me and when you have that kind of um, when you have that kind of view of yourself everyone else automatically is gonna feel that way about you as well and so same thing whether you're an employee whether you're an aspiring, aspiring entrepreneur, if you can believe about yourself, I am an expert. I am, I have value to add. In fact, that's one of the things that, you know, we, we hired on a new employee um, a couple weeks ago. And, you know, we assigned them to a new client. And this client is paying, I, I don't know, you know, a thousand bucks a month, two thousand bucks a month. Um, you know, it's one of our smaller accounts. Mm -hmm. But to him, um, you know, I, I met with him after a week or two and he said, he said, I just don't feel like I'm providing them the value that they're paying for. And I said, why not? And he said, I don't know that I have anything to offer that is worth $2,000 to them. And I said, that is the problem right there. The problem is you don't believe you have anything to offer them that is worth that amount of money. And if you can get beyond that mindset and realize, look, if I can build out a any kind of expertise, this is actually um, a point that, that Tim Ferriss makes in his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, mm -hmm. that I love. Um, if you can learn just a couple of things that give you any kind of expertise in an industry, you automatically have more expertise than probably 95% of the people out there. Yeah. Even if, even if you are not the number one expert in the world at that thing, mm -hmm. if you have any expertise, you know more than most people do. Yeah. And so if you, can, if you can tell yourself that and go, okay, I am gonna learn, I'm gonna learn a couple of things in this industry, that gives me some kind of authority. And if, if all I do is just tell people what they should be doing around those two things, mm -hmm. That is valuable to them. That yeah. is value that they can't provide for themselves. Yeah. And so if you could provide any kind of value, again, whether you're an employee, whether you are 
you know, you're starting a business, whether you're a super successful entrepreneur. I mean, if you have, if you can believe that you have value that other people don't, it will automatically fill other people and they'll just, they will be able to see that confidence and they will have confidence in you. Uh, and you'll be able to, again, do things that you never imagined you would be able to do, um, you know, a couple of years ago. Yeah. I mean, I, Honestly, I cannot say that enough because even I myself, I think when I started this podcasting thing, I was just messing around with it, you know, but the more I kept doing it, the more people started reaching out to me and say, hey, can you advise me on what to do on my own podcast? Uh, can you teach me what to do on this and on that? And I'm like, dude, I barely know this stuff myself. I just do it. <laughs> <laughs> I just do a little bit, <laughs> you know. But people yep. feel that at least, A, if you are even, if it's two steps ahead of someone else, that makes you an expert in that person's eyes. And once you have a bunch of those people that you're two steps ahead, guess what? You're a leader in that field. So people need to get over the mindset that when you're not the guy, you have to become the guy, I guess, before you are the guy. It's what you're trying to say. Am I right? Yes. 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 Yeah. Don't, I mean, fake it until you make it is is uh is not something that i typically um endorse i i absolutely endorse the mentality of believe that you are what you want to be right mm. so believe that you about. have value to produce and then you you will produce value yeah because i mean you you have you do have value to offer it's just about recognizing and believing that you have value and then, you know, because other people are not going to believe in you before you believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the most challenging things you faced in running your own agency as well as in working for an agency that you merged with when dealing with clients? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you the first challenge that I ran into. Uh, the first challenge I ran into was... Um, setting proper expectations with clients. Mm. So again, not knowing anything about how to manage client relationships or my own business, um, I went into my first, that very first client I mentioned that was kind of handed to me, Mm -hmm. uh, I went into that and just set ridiculous expectations. I set the same kind of expectations with my client that I would have with my boss, you know? And when you set expectations with your boss, like, it's usually a goal that you're shooting for, right? Yeah. It's, it may not be the real, <laughs> the reality of what you're going to do, but with a boss, you're trying to like, you know, position yourself and you're trying to, um, get everyone else excited about what you're doing with a client. You want to create excitement, but you also want to set proper expectations. And so I set these wild expectations that every test we were going to run was going to be a success mm-hmm. <laughs> I, because up until that point in my career, Pretty much every test I had run had been a success. And so I, you know, I set these expectations. We started in on this testing strategy and we had a test that failed. And I was like, oh, and, you know, and the client and of course, because I was feeling um, because I was feeling incompetent, the client felt like I was incompetent. Wow. (laughs) And and so I was like, oh, no, they're going to cancel like what can I do? And so I learned a really valuable lesson from that for my industry. And that was that a failed test provides just as much value as a successful test. Again, because if you approach that failed test and say, what did we learn about the audience here? Ah, we learned something that was super valuable. And that provides a ton of value because now we can pivot and we can, you know, we can adjust our strategy and use what we learned about our audience to run a, a follow-up test that is successful. But at the time, you know, I, again, I had not properly set expectations ahead of time. And so with all clients going forward, instead of saying every test we run is going to be a success, I started to say, we are going to learn about your audience from every test we run. And not every test will be a success, mm-hmm. but we will learn something valuable about your audience from every test. And so in that way, it will be a success. And so that really helped me in the future, but I mean, it was, uh, I thought it was gonna, you know, it was gonna be the end of daily conversion at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully it wasn't. 
So yeah. as we start to wind down the show, Chris, um, you mentioned earlier that you had some list of criteria that you used when you started your business. And obviously, you're, you were married at the time you started your business, correct? Yes. So, um, A, tell us the list of criteria you used to start your business. And B, how did you get your spouse to to buy into the vision and the dream of what you wanted to build out? Yeah, those are both really good questions. And I'll try to answer them in as little time as I can. Because, again, <laughs> these were... These were big, big, big challenges um, at the time. And, you know, number one, employ or, or spousal buy-off is probably one of the hardest sales you will ever make as an entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's your livelihood, right? And especially, you know, I had a really good job when I started my business. You know, I was making six figures a year, and it's really challenging to walk away from a really great job in pursuit of something that might not work out, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, so the list of criteria I made, frankly, were part of the buy-off process for the wife. Um, you know, I I sat down with some other entrepreneurs that had been very successful, and and some of the feedback they gave for me, number one, was you need to have a defined walkaway point. So you need to have a point, a, a goal that you set that is not just because it's very easy as an entrepreneur to be living on the pipe dream, right? Mm, to be yeah. like, oh, well, there's there's something coming up that I'm really excited about. And, and at that point, then I'll really have made it. Um, and so, you know, so I sat down and I with with my wife and I said, OK, what do we need to make in the next six months to make ends meet? Right. To like make this a viable career path. And so we defined what that number was. And I don't even remember what it was. But I mean, it wasn't that much like maybe $60,000 or something. And so I uh, and so I said, Okay, if at six months, we haven't made, you know, what whatever I needed to be at that point, 30, 30,000 or 45,000, you know, at, at a run rate to make the amount of money we needed to make, if we are not at that run rate by six months, I will walk away. Literally, I will walk away. I will get a job the next week. Mm. Like, it's not going to be like, oh, well, no, no, let's just wait until next month. Like, it was a firm commitment. I will walk away from the business. And so that was one of them was I needed to have a very defined walk away point. Number two is um, I set for myself, um, you know, some some personal goals of how I was going to get to this point. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was okay, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. I'm going to speak at a conference. I'm going to, um, I'm going to attend four networking events per week. You know, I can't remember what they all were, but some very firm goals. And I committed to those. Yeah. Um, commitment is a really, really big deal, uh, for me as an entrepreneur. Um, because a lot of commitments you make as an entrepreneur, no one else is going to know if you don't follow through with your commitment. I mean, my wife didn't even know, like my wife wouldn't have known if I, you know, if I had gone to three networking events instead of four, like it was very important for me to commit to something yes. and to follow through with my commitment to myself. Yeah. Right. So, so those were some of the things. And, and, you know, so my wife and I sat down, we looked at that list of criteria around starting our business. Um, you know, we figured out where we needed to be, where I committed to be, when we were going to walk away. And then we said, all right let's do this. And from that point, you know, my wife said, okay, I'm bought in for six months. Right. I mean, she didn't buy in forever right off yeah. the bat. It was, <laughs> I'm bought in for six months. And the, the incredible thing was after three months, we had already exceeded our six month goal. And wow. so after three months, we knew that this was a viable path. And so at that point we reestablished some new, you know, some new criteria yeah. and said, okay, so this is obviously worth continuing to do. Now, you know, what is the point at which we're going to hire somebody? What's the point? You know, and, and there, you know, you just up the game a little bit and and move on to the next to the next goals. And uh, and so that was, you know, my wife was extremely supportive and I would not have been successful if she had had doubted or uh, or not been a proponent of, of me doing that. Right. 
And I think my second to the last question would be, why did you decide to merge and become part of another company and work as a team as opposed to, you know, being the entrepreneur, you know, the adventurer, the forward guy, and then build your own thing and then stand out as your own boss like we're popularly led to believe in the media that every entrepreneur wants to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it is... um... There's a lot of pride and ego that comes with, like, you know, being the founder, the the owner of the company, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it does require – it was a very, very difficult decision. Um, And that was another decision that required a lot of spousal buy-off. You know, Mm -hmm. my wife was was very concerned. And uh, so there was a variety of things that went into the decision. And I can't go through all of them, but – you know, one thing was when you're going to merge companies, you need to be dang certain that the person you're merging with is someone that you want to be aligned with long term, mm-hmm. someone that you feel like you can be along, aligned with long term. Again, I got a ton of feedback from mentors at this point to figure out what kinds of things do I need to be aware of. So, you know, one of the things was I needed to have, once again, a very clear exit strategy, right? So, okay, we will merge. And let's get some legal documents written up about how we will separate things if it doesn't work out, right? So yeah. we, you know, uh, uh, Jake Badsgard, who is the owner of Disruptive, him and I sat down and, I mean, we hammered these things out for hours and hours. And we probably spent 20 hours meeting together and discussing, um, you know, number one, what is the upside for both of us? Mm-hmm. Is there enough upside to justify this kind of a merger? Number two, so for me, the upside was, you know, I at the time had, I don't know, uh, 15 clients or so, and Disruptive had 400. And so Disruptive immediately gave me access to a ton of potential clients, mm-hmm. right? Disruptive. Um, was a PPC agency, and they had created a lead generation machine for our own business. And so we had figured out how to generate new clients efficiently and affordably. And so I loved that. And that was something that I didn't have at the mm. time, again, because, uh, you know, and so so there was a lot of upside for me. The upside for for Jake was... I was adding a new branch to the company. You know, I was adding a new service that we could offer to all of our clients. Um, you know, I brought additional expertise. I brought additional, you know, business background and you know, and entrepreneurial skills that are very hard to come by when you know when you're running an organization. Um, it's hard to find people who are hungry and who are as, are as hungry and passionate as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, so there was, anyways, there was a lot of upside for both of us. We clearly defined in, in you know, spelled out legal documents what things would look like if we decided that it didn't work out and the time frames under which those things would happen. And, um, and so, again, my wife and I took a look at that. We said, we said, okay, here's the, you know, here are all the things that we need to see in order for this to be a success. We went out to dinner with Jake and his wife and got to know them, and we felt really comfortable with it. And so... Uh, yeah, that was that was part of a very long process. Well, that's that's good that you summarize it like that because a merger is kind of like you know second marriage. So you want to make sure yes. that whoever you're merging with is actually going to be the right fit because that that marriage is going to also affect your personal relationship with your wife and everything else you do. So you want to make sure that. If you're getting in bed with somebody in business, it better be the right person. And it seems Absolutely. like you did all the due diligence necessary to make a great decision there. Yep. So, so my last my last question for today is for people listening that are, you know, coming down the road and want to do kind of like what you did in terms of either starting your own agency or working with somebody else, especially in a field where they don't even know exists yet. What's some words of wisdom you would want to share with those people? That is a good question. Um, and <laughs> the, the advice that I, that I would give, and this is um, probably not your typical entrepreneurial advice, um, but I think one of the things that's had the most 
positive, the, the most positive impact on my business career is um, a healthy and regular practice of meditation. Mm. So, you know, again, this is, this is uh, not your typical entrepreneurial advice, but the reason that I'm saying this is probably one of the most valuable things is it's super easy when you are either starting a new career path or starting a business, um, the days can be exhausting. There is so much. I mean, it's like you're drinking from a fire hose every day and it is really easy to get mental fatigue. <laughs> and when you get mental fatigue, it's super easy to make stupid decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you're not thinking at your peak. Um, you're not giving your best to your clients. I mean, you can get really cranky with your wife and that can ruin your, your relationship. You can get cranky with your clients and that can ruin your business. I mean, you, you just don't want that. And so, um, so one of the things that I, that I do every day is I spend a minimum of 10 minutes a day, um, doing some kind of meditation. There's a, there's a ton of different types of meditation, but what that essentially does is it kind of flushes the, it flushes the system, right? It gets, it, it helps you to sort through all of your thoughts. It helps you to um, become very aware of all the things that are going on inside of you, and it helps you to effectively manage them. And so, um, honestly, that, that is probably one of the most effective things I can recommend. And there's tons of books out there that you can that you can uh, that you can get to learn different ways of meditating. Um, but yeah, great. And with that said, my friend, we've reached the end of the show. I really want to thank you for coming. So where can people find you, Chris, and learn about you and what you're doing? Yeah, so um, people can look me up on Twitter. I'd be happy to answer any questions people have. At Chris Daly, my last name is D-A-Y-L-E-Y. -Y. Um, and if people are interested in disruptive advertising or if they're interested in getting started with A-B testing, uh, we actually have a free guide that people can download online that will give you, you know, all the tools that you might need to do A-B testing, some of the tests that you should think about. Um, and people can get that by going to disruptiveadvertising.com slash guide. And, um, and there's a little box. If people are interested in talking with us, they can check the little box. Otherwise, you can just get the guide and, and, uh, and get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And you know what? That just reminded me of a fun fact about you. Uh, that most people wouldn't know is that you have never opened a Facebook account. I never have. <laughs> <laughs> so why and uh, why are you being so stubborn, man? Why are you a cheeky nonconformist? Why don't you want to join the bandwagon? <laughs> well, for me, it's really about um, it's it's really about being deliberate with where I spend my time. Okay, you know I. Um, I have an addictive personality, which means it is very easy for me to get addicted to things. I used to be addicted to video games and you could just waste your life away playing video games all day long. Yep. Same thing on social media. Um, I, I know myself well enough to know that if I had a Facebook or an Instagram, I would spend more time than is necessary on there. And so I am just choosing to be responsible around how I spend my time. And it's not something that I need, honestly. My quality of life is not any worse than if I had a Facebook account, except yeah. that I occasionally get people that go, you don't have Facebook? <laughs> but honestly, it's probably a better conversation piece than, than if I actually had it. And so, um, yeah, for me, it's, I, I'm trying to be deliberate with how I spend my time, and uh, it's not something I really care to have. Great. And I think that's very important for people to know is that you need to know and understand yourself first because you've already analyzed what's good for you and what's not good for you. And you know that if you go down that rabbit hole of Facebook, it's probably going to lead you down a path you don't want. And that's going to be unsuccessful and it's not going to help you achieve your long term goals. So it's good that you cut off basically the stuff that, you know, will distract you from your your life work and your life mission and just focus on what you need to make you and your family happy. So I'm glad exactly. you are able to concisely say that message to people listening out there because a lot of people will hear, oh, you need to be on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, <laughs> uh, WhatsApp, every other thing out there. But you know what, guys, just focus on one thing and you will get success. You can't divide your attention to a hundred different things and expect to get the same results. So, my friend, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming to spend the hour. 
sharing your expertise and your wisdom. And I look forward to talking to you again in the near future. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com.